0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at Shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing and turn your Bibles, the Gospel of Matthew. We're making our way through the book of Matthew for this sermon series, and we're in chapter twenty-seven, page eight hundred and thirty-four, if you're using the pew Bible. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11 and reading until verse 26. Let us worship the Lord together by listening very carefully to this, the public reading of his word. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But he, when, he, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a no- notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream." Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Amen. As for the reading of God's word. Let's uh, seek his help in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your word, which comes to us again this day. Father, come to us, blessing us, O Lord. Uh, we pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might indeed once again this day behold wondrous things from your law, from your gospel, from your word. Uh, Lord, would you guide us by your spirit into all truth and cause us to grow by that truth in the grace and knowledge of the very Savior herein revealed, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, one thing that really struck me, stood out to me uh, in the text this morning as I was thinking about it this past week, something worth, I think, mentioning by way of introduction happens to be something that Matthew actually says very little about. It's in the very last verse there, only three words in the ESV, having scourged Jesus, as, as a matter of fact, in the Greek, it may be only two words or possibly really only even one Word the uh, the one word participle having scourged one word in the Greek the object of the scourging and crucifying of course is Christ and that his so that word had to be there anyway so it may be the idea is Pilate released for them Barabbas but Jesus having scourged he delivered to be crucified having scourged. My point is Matthew doesn't even come close to going into any kind of detail as to what was involved here, but we should understand well that the Jewish readers, those who received these words, they understood very well what all was involved. One commentator writes this about this scourging which Jesus received. He uses the word flogging. He writes, quote, the preliminary flogging, was an accepted part of the process leading to crucifixion. It was done with leather whips, sometimes weighted with pieces of metal or bone, and was a brutal process which inflicted serious injury and could itself sometimes prove fatal. The gospel narratives, both at this point and at the point of crucifixion, make no attempt to draw out the sheer physical horror of the procedure, though Matthew's first readers would have known, as modern readers do not, that Roman flogging was something far more serious and obscene than a few strokes with a whip. I was thinking about that and thinking, how is it that something so horrendous, so horrifying could be given so little mention in the gospel narrative? And I, you know, it's almost, it's almost like, He delivered Jesus over to be crucified, by the way, having beaten him, torn him apart within an inch of his life, delivered him over to be crucified. How could that not be mentioned with any kind of detail? And I think we can answer it among among the possible answers we could give. We could answer it this way, as reflected in my sermon title. Really, the entire trial, everything about it was a flogging, wasn't it? I mean, think about what we see here, the perversion of justice by the Roman magistrate, the wicked demand of Jesus' people, the Jews, a Jewish mob, the freeing of a criminal, a condemned criminal, well, condemning to death the innocent one. What a scourge indeed. And yet we see these words, and we see something wonderful, beautiful. Here's the gospel. We see a, a savior uh, uh, the innocent one, innocent one condemned so that we, the sinners, the criminals could be set free. Our message this morning is this that the scourge of Pilate's concession to the wicked demands of the Jews led to a savior crucified for criminal sinners, crucified for sinners like you and me. It's a wonderful message. We're going to unpack that by looking at those three components just just mentioned. First, Pilate's perversion of justice, and then the wicked demand of the Jewish crowd, and then lastly, the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. So let's begin then with Pilate himself, Pilate's perversion of justice. Friends, I think it's worth asking the question, are you looking for justice in this world? Are you tempted? Do you feel constrained to, to join together with the social justice warriors of our modern day? I think one thing that the crucifixion of our Lord reminds us, teaches us, is that you would be a fool to think that you're going to find anything close to ultimate justice in this broken world. As we saw before, and actually we see it again today, we certainly didn't get it from the uh, from the Jewish high priest, the Sanhedrin, but neither did it come from Pilate. And Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. That's one thing our text makes abundantly clear. In fact, I think that's a really important sort of theme in Matthew's narrative here. Last time it was Judas, our Lord's betrayer. We saw that he was stricken with grief, stricken to the point of taking his own life, yet unrepentant, as we rightly learned. And yet there was this testimony, this man is innocent. And now Pilate does the very same thing. We see he's called upon by the Jews To determine not whether Jesus has committed blasphemy. Blasphemy would would not warrant death under Roman law. The accusation here is that that Jesus is a self-proclaimed king who wants to lead the people in rebellion against Rome. This man is a threat to the empire. Luke's gospel makes it even more clear than does Matthew that this is really the accusation. In Luke chapter 23, we see that, that they're accusing him of misleading their nation and forbidding them to pay tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is a king, the idea of being a king in place of Caesar. And we know, of course, those are all terrible lies, lies which Jesus very easily could have refuted, but we see that the only answer he gives to any of this is that brief answer to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? It's an interesting answer we see here. Jesus replies, you have said so. Actually, again, only two words here in the Greek. I think that the old King James better captures the brevity of the response when it says, thou sayest, thou sayest. We, we know, of course, from, from the Gospel of John, John chapter 18, that Jesus did say more than just that. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting and so forth. Interesting that Matthew chose to include just this brief response. And I think what we see here is very similar to what we saw in the last chapter, our Lord's response to the, the question of the high priest, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? These two concepts go together. The Christ, of course, Messiah would be the King. And I think Jesus here again is basically saying, yes, but I don't mean by that what you mean by that, or perhaps even better to say, I don't mean by that what those who are accusing me would have you think that I mean by that. I'm not the kind of Messiah that they're accusing me of being one seeking to lead the people and rebelling against Rome. No, Jesus was innocent. He was innocent and Pilate knew he was innocent. I think we can identify three, three things in particular that show that in our text. First, as we see in verse eighteen, it was it was apparently obvious to Pilate that they were completely motivated by envy, not about true concern about justice. This really was politics, wasn't it? Uh, we see this also in John chapter eleven, verse forty-eight, where the Jew, we read about how the Jews were concerned that if the people believed in Jesus, well, the Romans would come away and they would take away their place and their. So this was really about their own standing, not a pursuit of justice. This was a pursuit of selfishness. This was self-interest and Pilate saw it. But then secondly, know what we see up in verse 14, just as we saw our Lord's uh, amazing silence before the Sanhedrin, we see the same thing again, again in our text this morning. We see the amazing silence of Jesus. Jesus remained silent and everything we said there applies here as well. Christ obeyed. Christ magnified obedience to the ninth commandment by the way he restrained his lips. Our Lord persevered in perfect obedience. And here we see that he did so in a way that sort of caused Pilate's jaw to drop to the floor. The governor was amazed, amazed. And I think we should say amazed in a positive way here. I suspect that knowing that Jesus could have so easily refuted this false, wretched testimony, Pilate was amazed by his restraint. This was proof that Jesus was anything but what they were claiming of me. If he was wanting to exalt himself as a king, he'd be defending himself, but he was silent. And then thirdly, and this is an interesting one, isn't it? We note in verse 19 how Pilate's wife knew from a dream that Jesus was innocent. It's possible that Pilate's wife was drawn to Judaism, came to fear the God of Israel. Some suggest that indeed she was a God-fearer. We don't know for sure that that was the case. The Bible doesn't tell us, but here we see that she sends him word, "'Have nothing to do with that righteous man. I've suffered much because of him today in a dream.'" And one side note I think we should mention is that we should not see this as a, uh, a warrant for seeking after messages or guidance from God in our dreams. I used to have to tell people that as a missionary in Africa. It's Africa. I would say again and again: the only place where to be going for guidance from the Lord is His inspired Word, the Bible, which has given everything that we need for for life and for godliness. Second Peter chapter one verse three: everything we need, so that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. Second Second Timothy three. 17, that important truth notwithstanding, it's interesting. God can use any means he chose, and he chose to to impress upon this woman uh, the innocence of Christ through this dream. And the Lord used this, I think, as part of the means of convincing Pilate that Christ was innocent. And so in multiple ways, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. And yet despite all this, Pilate cowardly perverted justice, the washing of his hands, which we'll say more about in a minute. But but that did not absolve Pilate of his guilt. Pilate should have stood up Pilate should have opposed this evil. He should have acted according to what he knew was right. And this is really amazing if you stop and think about it. And this is, this is the, a governor of the Roman Empire. Rome boasted of, of all of its great contributions to the development of civilized society. Among those contributions was its institution of law. The laws of the Twelve Tables, that was that, that legislation that, that stood at the foundation of Roman law written some five centuries before these events. The Twelve Tables are seen as foundation, foundational to our, our, our modern concepts of justice and punishment and so forth. How ironic that Rome goes down in history, forever known as the empire, the government under whose authority the innocent son of God was condemned and was crucified. Remarkable. I think one appropriate application for us as we meditate on this this morning is, beloved, do not put your trust in any government, right? Put your trust in the true and living God, Good thing to remind ourselves of as we approach another election year. Do not put your trust in the government. Pray for those in authority. Submit to them as our Lord has taught us to do. And I'm certainly not saying that we're just to stand by and do nothing while the world goes to hell in a handbasket, as the saying goes. Certainly, we're to be prayerfully involved. We're to vote. We're to speak out. We're to be involved in every way that the Lord enables us and calls us. To be. But we do well to remember that our Lord has not promised us any throne established upon righteousness in truth, not ultimate righteousness in truth, not in this sin-cursed world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and we can add to that, you know, if, if we expect never to have to, to, to suffer at the hands of wicked magistrates, I think we're exalting ourselves above the Lord. We're we're forgetting what he taught us. No servant is above his master. If they treated me this way, do you think you expect any better for yourselves? And we we certainly should pray for upright rulers and pray for Christian rulers. We ought to rejoice when that happens. But dear Christian, don't put your trust in government. And we can add to that, do not despair, but trust the Lord that he's in control. He's even able to work through the wicked actions of wicked leaders. We see that most clearly in our text, do we not? God accomplishing good through the actions of evil, Leaders look at the good that he was doing as our Lord suffered under the scourge of the injustice delivered under Pontius Pilate and suffering this way in in response to the wicked demand of his own people, the Jews. That brings us to our second point this morning, the wicked demand of the Jewish crowd Pilate was, was anything but innocent, and we're going to say even more about that. But what's most amazing is that he's the one who ends up looking really good in comparison to the covenant people, the Jews, Pilate's reluctant about giving Jesus over to death. The Jews, they're the ones uh, pressing for Christ's execution. And when we we say the Jews here, we're referring not only to the religious leaders, but even the crowd whom they have persuaded to turn against Jesus. Leave for the moment the, the tragic choice of Barabbas over Jesus, but jump down to verse 22 in the text. And I want us to just think about this. Just imagine the scene here. Pilate asks them, well, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And what is their answer? Let him be crucified. What an amazing answer. It almost strikes me that that Pilate himself is stricken with with unbelief. He's the one defending his innocence. Why? 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 What evil has he done? Just think about that question. Ponder that question this morning, a question which deeply profound and yet so simple, we ought all to be able to answer that question. What evil has he done? Even the children, we we, we sung in the hymn that that the, the, the life of Jesus from youth Throughout his life, he was the model for perfect obedience. What evil had he done? Was he an evil man, a man who should be condemned to death, cruel, evil? No, this is Jesus who went about doing good, obeying his parents, healing the sick, opening up the eyes of the blind, feeding the hungry, walking around the land of Palestine, doing nothing but good and revealing the goodness of God. And it was goodness that should have moved the people To repentance. What evil has he done? I think the question should have had the people falling on their faces in shame. Instead, what does it say? Verse 23 But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. They shouted. They shouted loudly. They shouted violently. This was no peaceful protest. What does it say in verse 24? Not only was Pilate unable to persuade them, but he was afraid a riot was about to break out. A riot was beginning, the text says. It seems that without one word about what evil he had done, not one word about why he should be crucified, all they could do was shout, crucify him, crucify him. Talk about injustice. And these were the covenant people, right? These were the people who received something far greater than the 12 tables, the Roman law. These were those who'd received the the law of God delivered on those tablets of stone on Mount Sinai, written engraved with the very finger of God. And here they were dashing it all to pieces. And note what happens next. Pilate takes water. It's in fitting That we had a baptism this morning. Here, Pilate takes water and he, he's washing his hands in innocence. What an amazing act to perform before the Jewish crowd with their ritual cleansings and so forth. Again, Pilate was not a righteous man. You know, historians have, have described Pilate as being oppressive and cruel, even as one who frequently executed untried prisoners, so much for Rome's great system of justice, right? It didn't really uh, apply so much to those who weren't Roman citizens and our Lord was not a Roman citizen. Pilate was not knowing, known for being kind to the Jewish people. Luke 13 tells us of a time when he apparently slaughtered Galilean Jews as they worshiped because we were told that he took, took their blood and mingled it with the blood of their sacrifices. So think about this. This is a man who himself had blood on his hands. And what is he doing in this context? And again, I'm not suggesting that he was innocent with respect. After the, the death of Christ, he was guilty, the people were guilty. the whole thing stunk, it was a, it was a flogging indeed, but at least in Pilate's case there was some some conflict of conscience here. he did something which which again served as a public testimony that Jesus was innocent. He took water, washed his hands before the people, said, "I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it." yourselves. Pilate was saying, this man is innocent, and I don't want this innocent man's blood on my hands. Well, what a shocking response is that which we see in verse 25. His blood be on us and our children. What a tragic, tragic picture of the covenant people. We might again ask the question, which Jews in particular were these folks here? I mention that because there are those who suggest that these were not the same Jews who praised Jesus at the triumphal entry. Those were the the Galilean Jews who were coming into Jerusalem for the feast. No, these were the Judean Jews with their animus towards the Galileans, and that 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 may be true. Uh, I think at least in part but Matthew does not make any distinction like that explicit in the text and i do think that this we have to see this as speaking more generally to the covenant nation his own people turned against him he came to his own john tells us john 11 he came to his own and his own people did not Receive him, and so this is sort of the, the culmination of Israel's covenant-breaking unfaithfulness, their rejection of the Lord. But even more generally, we, we need to see this as a picture of our sin. Israel's sin, Israel's covenant-breaking unfaithfulness is a picture of what you are and what I am as covenant-breaking sinners in Adam. We've all turned against. We've rejected the Lord. We are sinners by nature. And as we think about this crowd, this evil, evil crowd, friends, as you imagine them shouting out, crucify him. As you think about the awfulness of that sin, you do well this morning to think about just how awful is the awfulness of your own sin. This is uh, something we're called to do, isn't it? An important part of the uh, important strategy uh, in, in the battle against the flesh, your own fight against your own sin, be it grumbling about a wicked ruler or any other sin in your life Think about how heinous it is and let that help you to mourn over your sin. I had occasion this past week to think about the words of James in James chapter 4 and verses 7 and following where James says, "'Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you.'" Okay, well, well, how do we do that? Well, one important way uh, is repentance. Repentance. So James continues, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. If there were some who once shouted in support of Jesus, and then they turned about and Talk about double-mindedness. Well, that's a picture, James says, of what you all are, as what we all are as sinners. Repentance involves being broken over. Our sin, and so verse nine continues, James four nine, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Well, brothers and sisters, it helps us to do that as we think about the fact that it was our sin, your sin, my sin that required a suffering Messiah. Do you believe that? You think about that, even as as you're singing, how deep the Father's love for us. We sing those words, behold, uh, behold the man upon a cross, my sin, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin, my sin that held him there. I think about the words of the great hymn, ah, holy Jesus. We sing, who was the guilty who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus. I, it was, denied thee. I crucified thee. Or to express it using the words of our text this morning, my sin, my sin is the scourge upon Jesus. And every time I sin, I'm the one who commits the flogging. You see, when you, when you, when you see your sin truly that way, when you feel that in your heart, then Christ becomes so much more precious to you. And I want us to think on that as we come to our, our last th- uh, point this morning. The last thing we see is, is this, the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. So, our text ends, then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I think the, uh, the release of Barabbas so powerfully really reveals the, uh, the hypocrisy, the injustice. And why is that? Well, Barabbas actually was guilty of the very thing of which they were accusing Jesus. Barabbas was a rebel, a rebel against Rome. Barabbas had been involved in insurrection and even had committed murder, which we know from Mark chapter 15 and verse 7. here again, Pilate knew it. He knew it was true. Pilate sought to make use of this, this custom, something that apparently took place every year at the feast where he would release to the crowd one prisoner, whomever they chose. Surely, surely, Pilate thought, surely they would have they, they, they would choose Jesus and have him released. It's kind of a reminder, isn't it, that sometimes politicians can be a bit out of touch with what really is important to the people whom they over whom they rule. I think the truth is, as some have suggested, that it was not terribly difficult for the chief priests and the elders to persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas. It may be that Barabbas was somewhat popular with the people. Some, some scholars believe that Barabbas was something of a, a Robin Hood figure, one who stole from the rich, the rich among the Romans as well as the Jewish upper class, stole from the rich, gave to the poor, or at least used that money to support his own insurrection activities. He was not just any common criminal. R.T. France writes that he was a freedom fighter to the Romans, an insurrectionist, but to the Jews, Pilate uh, or Barabbas was a patriot. I suppose to the Jews, when we, when, at least for many, when we think about what it was that they wanted in terms of a Messiah, it was Barabbas who fit the mold a lot better than Jesus did. So just think about this. For many, if we can say that the, they loved Barabbas, what was it that they loved about him? Well, Barabbas was outwardly what they all were in their hearts. They were rebels. They were murderers. And so they were happy to yell out, to yell out violently, even riotously with great zeal, free Barabbas and crucify him. Free the murderer, free the insurrectionist and crucify, crucify the innocent one, crucify the one innocent of any, any crimes committed against Rome. Oh, the hypocrisy, oh, the injustice, oh, the, what what a scourging it was Indeed, and yet here's where we say, "But what beauty, what glory, what grace! What a great God!" Here we see the gospel revealed so wonderfully. The guilty one is condemned, while the prisoner—sorry, the, the the innocent one—is condemned, while the guilty one is set free. For all of you who know Christ, who love this gospel, I don't—I don't need to tell you how wonderfully this this pictures the gospel itself. And yet I will tell you, that's what preachers are called to do. In fact, I'm going to tell it to you, not in my own words, but in the words of the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon. I want to end this morning on a quote from here where he writes this, or he preached these words, Have we not here, first of all, in this act of the deliverance of the sinner and the binding of the innocent, a sort of type of that great work which is accomplished by the death of our Savior. You and I may fairly take our stand by the side of Barabbas. We have robbed God of his glory. We have been seditious traitors against the government of heaven. If he who hateth his brother be a murderer, we also have been guilty of that sin. Here we stand before the judgment seat. The prince of life is bound for us, and we are suffered to go free. The Lord delivers us and acquits us, while the Savior, without spot or blemish or shadow of a fault, is led forth to crucifixion. What wonderful words. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior. Let that move you, yes, to hate your sin. Let it move you to, to true repentance. We have more reason this morning to do what we were called upon to do last week. We think of the self-scourging of true repentance, the mortifying of the flesh, but we're given such wonderful reason to repent in faith, in apprehension of the wonderful mercy of God in Christ. There's Jesus, your righteousness, condemned for you, delivered over to death so that you might be set free, and in him you are free. All who trust in him, if you've not trusted him in this, this morning, we would plead with you. Today's the day of salvation. There's no other savior for sinners. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You will be set free, free from sin, free to serve him as your king, king indeed, not just king of the Jews, but king of kings, Lord of lords, Lord of heaven and earth, the one whom they crucified and the one whom they would crucify and indeed did. God has raised from the dead, proving that all of the kingdoms of this world with all of the wicked magistrates will, in the end, come to an end, but his kingdom will endure forever and ever and ever. And you are free to serve him then as you take up your place in his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful Savior, indeed, what a glorious King. We bless you, O Lord God, for his suffering, and we bless you for his glory. Father, we long for his kingdom, the kingdom uh, which is coming in glory, the kingdom which comes, and the, the pilots of this world will be no more, and only, only where there'll be, will there be Christ reigning in righteousness forever and ever and ever. We say this morning again, come, Lord Jesus, come. But Father, help us even now to live under your righteous rule. Help us to put our trust, not in any earthly earthly magistrate, but only in you, the true and living God. Father, would you come and strengthen us this day, uh, strengthen our faith, even by your spirit, working through your word, and grant that we might go forth from this place living as faithful servants, disciples of King Jesus. It's in his name that we do pray. Amen.